years. I'm not as smart as I look. No matter how smart I look, I'm not. We're continuing in the Gospel of John, <clears throat> chapter 14 this morning. We're looking at the last week in the life of Jesus, the week that he's betrayed and the hands of the into the hands of the Pharisees and the Jewish high priest. In chapters 13 through 17, Jesus is saying goodbye to his disciples. His words disturb, disturb them. In one night, he turns their uh, notions of greatness upside down. The disciples are confused, and they're desperate for encouragement, and Jesus is going to take this time in, in chapter 14, and he's going to encourage them. He starts with verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Well, you might ask, well, why are their hearts troubled? In fact, Jesus himself said back in chapter 13, verses, uh, verse 21, when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit. Well, what had he said? That he had said in verse 21 that one of them was going to be a traitor. He said in verse 33 that he was leaving them. And then in verses 36 through 38, he actually told Peter face to face, you're going to deny me three times before morning comes. Now this probably disturbed all of the disciples because they looked at Peter as kind of the leader of the group. Jesus, after he uh, revealed his inward burden, uh, he began to recognize that, that his disciples were even more troubled in their hearts. So he seeks to comfort them and to tell them why he's going away, why he's going to be with the Father. Now, the more I study and think about these chapters, the more I'm su uh, surprised at how clueless the disciples are. For instance, in chapter 11, we see the disciples fearfully warning Jesus just to stay put and stay safe. Verse 8 of chapter 11, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? In chapter 12, after reveling in the, the crowds cheering and crying out and singing the song of Isaiah's prophecy, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Well, then John tells us uh, in that same chapter, verse uh, 16, he says his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things that were written and uh, that they, the things that they would do to him. So during this same time, Luke gives us one more thought. Uh, um, chapter 22, as they sat together within hours of the betrayal, Luke reveals their true state of mind. He says, now, 
there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Now, we're within hours of the crucifixion. But with these men, it's just like another day in the neighborhood. Finally, in John chapter 13, Jesus tells the disciples that he will be with them for just a little while. And Peter is confused. He says in verse 36, Lord, where are you going? Their hearts are troubled. They're confused. They're puzzled and perplexed. So Jesus goes right back to the basics. Here in the last part of verse 1, he says this, You believe in God, believe also in me. He's saying, remember, I've been telling you for the past three years that Jehovah, God the Father, sent me into this world, and it's all about his timing. It's all about God's purposes for me. Then, I think because of the looks on their faces, he begins to describe a heaven that opens their eyes and their hearts to some wonderful eternal possibilities. In fact, when everything is said and done, he's telling them, you're all going home. So verses 2 through 6, Jesus is preparing a place for them, for us. He says in verse 2, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Jesus turns their eyes and their thoughts to heaven. Heaven is a real, literal place. He says, I go to prepare a place for for you. You see, heaven, I believe, is tailor-made for each one of us by Jesus himself. I like how Pastor John Corson says this. He says, think through this. What do you enjoy? What has God built into your being? Whatever it is, know this. And this is our Um, we have this quote up here. Jesus is preparing a place for you to fulfill the elements he's woven into the fabric of your personality, uniquely and specifically. If you believe in Jesus, you're headed home. Heaven is our home, and it's a place that Jesus is preparing for us. In fact, he calls it creating mansions in the Father's house. The imagery here is of a dwelling place. And actually, the Greek word for mansions is rooms. It's taken from the Oriental house in which sons and daughters uh, have apartments under the same roof as their parents. And I like how Pastor Sandy Adams puts it. He says this, This is our first point in the bulletin. The image Jesus is giving us is not spacious, custom-built estates, but intimacy and fellowship. In heaven, we'll live under our Father's roof and eat at our Father's table. Jesus is comforting the disciples, and us too, with the assurance that there's room for us in the Father's house. He's preparing us a place for all eternity. It's like an addition on to the Father's house. And 
Think of it this way. Jesus grew up as the son of a carpenter. And so right now he's in heaven working hard, building you and me a place to stay. He says in verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So heaven is where we'll live with Jesus. Now this world is a, a beautiful place, and God created it in just six days. So think about it. Jesus has been working on your place for the last 2,000 years. We can only imagine the glories and the wonder that await us when we finally go home. Jesus also promises to come back to this planet and gather us up to himself, those who have believed in him. This is my next point in the bulletin. These two topics are the two central truths relating to the sure promises all believers can cling to. Jesus is preparing our rooms in the Father's house, and he's coming back to take us home. Jesus gave us these promises, and he doesn't go back on his word. Now, I have bad days now and then, and I don't know about you, but I'm not always in a place emotionally or mentally where I feel or even remember that Jesus has promised never to leave me, that peace and comfort is mine by his Spirit, or that the Lord is always sovereign and ultimately in control of world events. I can't always sing with the songwriter Russell Carter. And here's the hymn he wrote. Standing on the promises of God, when the howling storms of doubt and fear assail by the living word of God, I shall prevail. Standing on the promises of God. In this chapter, Jesus is giving us several promises that he's going to keep for each of us. But too often my faith fails me and my fears convince me. Even though Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church to comfort one another, he said, comfort each other with these two thoughts, that Jesus is coming back for us, that we will all be raptured to meet him in the air, living and dead alike, our bodies will be changed for eternity in heaven with him. Comfort one another with these thoughts, he says. Well, it's really great that neither my faith nor my feelings affects the promise of his return or the reality of the heaven that he's preparing for me right now. Jesus goes on and continues in verse 4. He says, Where I go and the way you know. Now the disciples have been prepared. They know the way. Jesus has spent the last three years teaching them, but it's actually going to take the ministry of God's Holy Spirit to complete this job and to remind them later of all that Jesus has said and done. In fact, Look down at verse 26 in this chapter. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, Jesus tells us, whom the Father will send in my name, 
He will teach you all the things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Well, right now, these twelve are overwhelmed with mixed emotions. They, you see, they fear the Pharisees, and yet they're ecstatic, even speechless, over the triumphal entrance into Jerusalem that just took place. The people were shouting and cheering, and they're applauding Jesus as their king. They were caught up in this triumphal entrance. But now, Jesus is backing off. He's talking about leaving them, about coming back for them, the Father's house, many mansions. It's confusing to them. Coming into Jerusalem just yesterday um, made them feel like Jesus was finally getting his due. The people want him to be king. They even start thinking, and, and Luke is the one that let us know, we might get to help him rule. In fact, I wonder which of us will be the greatest. But now, now, Jesus is talking about leaving. Verse 5, Thomas speaks up. Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Well, it seems obvious to me that Thomas is thinking of some distant uh, destination like Rome or Spain, safe from these religious rulers. But Jesus is speaking of going to the Father. In verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This verse has become one of our most quoted statements or claims of Jesus. In fact, in this verse we have three more of what we call the I am statements of Jesus. It's a radical statement, but it's the most logical answer for Jesus to give them. He's saying, this has been my message from day one. I am the way. Remember when he said, I am the door of the sheepfold? Well, all other ways to find or approach God are dead ends. He said, I am the truth. Any message that adds to or contradicts Jesus' words are false and misleading. And then he says, I am the life. Well, mankind is spiritually dead. Spiritual, eternal life only comes through faith in Jesus. Truly, the way to eternal life with the Father is through Jesus Christ. I like how J. Vernon McGee sums up this whole verse. Here's what he says. Jesus said, I am the way. He is not just a person who shows the way, but he personally is the way. No church or ceremony can bring you to God. Only Christ can bring you to God. He is the way. Either you have Christ or you don't have him. Either you trust him or you don't. McGee goes on. Also, Jesus said he is the truth. He isn't saying that he tells the truth, although he does do that. He is the truth. He is the Bureau of Standards for Truth, McGee says, the very touchstone of truth. And he is the life. 
He isn't simply stating that he is alive. He is the source, the origin of life from the lowest vegetable plane to the highest spiritual plane of life. This is my third point in the bulletin. Jesus was not exhibiting a narrow arrogance. Rather, he was making the only possible deduction from the fact that he, the unique son, was the sole means of access to the Father. In my early years as a Christian, we would hold up our index finger as a sign one way. There's still only one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus. Do any of you old-timers remember that? John Corson says it this way. He says, If there's ever a bone of contention people want to pick with believers, it's exclusivity. You're too narrow, they say to us. I don't mind you believing what you believe, but don't say it's the only way. Well, John says, we don't say this. It's Jesus who declared it. Call me narrow, he says. Call me narrow if you wish. But Jesus is the one who said, narrow is the way which leads to eternal life, and broad is the path which leads to destruction. Well, in chapter 14, next we come to verses 7 through 11. Jesus reveals the Father to them. This is another radical statement. Jesus is getting down to to the end of the road, and he makes several of these type of statements. Verse 7. He says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. Well, the disciples are still confused. Their thinking hasn't left earth's surface. They'll remain puzzled until his death and resurrection. In fact, they remain puzzled until they're filled with the Spirit at Pentecost that we find in the the book of Acts. They had all the information, but they couldn't put it together. Now, whether the disciples were aware of it yet, knowing Jesus as they did, that was actually knowing and experiencing God the Father. If you knew Jesus, you knew the Father. Uh, This has a parallel uh, thought in Paul's teaching in the book of Colossians. In Colossians, he says, He, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus was a perfect representation of the Father. That's point number four in, my, in the bulletin. In all of his works, in all of his words, in all of his deeds, Jesus represented the Father. Verse 8, Philip says to him, Well, Lord, show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. Philip, he wants concrete evidence of the Father, someone or something he can see or touch. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? I think here Jesus asserts his deity. He was God incarnate. 
God in human skin. Though three separate persons, the members of the Godhead are all of one substance. That means if you see Jesus, you see the Father. Both are fully God. You see, Philip already had experienced the greatest revelation of God. Greater than Moses had or greater than Isaiah. Because he had seen God incarnate in the flesh and been with him in his presence for three years. And I think this is what is so uniquely different about Jesus. He's not just another prophet or great spiritual leader. Jesus is fully God in human form. Philip walked with his Creator along the grassy paths of Galilee and down those dirt roads in Judea. Yet he never thought, it never dawned on him who was really by his side. He had walked with God. So Jesus says in verse 10, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. When Jesus spoke, it was the will of the Father. All of his works were the will of the Father. So he can tell Philip that when he heard the words of Jesus, he was hearing the words of the Father. And when he saw the works of Jesus, it was the Father working through Jesus. Now, Pastor Jared last week gave us some insight into this idea of being in someone. When he talked about the new commandment to love one another, that was in verses 34 and 35 of John 13. Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's when we love one another like only Jesus can love that the world will know that we belong to God. Pastor Jared told us that this is crazy love. Why? Because this Agape love was impossible for any of us to do to others. This love that Jesus gave, this totally unconditional love, loving others regardless of whether they observe, uh, love us or not. This is crazy love. Because this agape love is impossible for any of us to give others. Nobody can love like this except Jesus. We can't love like this apart from Jesus. Jesus is the one by His Spirit who enables us to have that kind of love. That's why Jesus said, All will know that you are my disciples when you have that love for one another. So we know that the Father was in Jesus because Jesus continually, unfailingly, in other words, always, in every moment, 
loved his disciples and the world around him with the Father's love. Only God can love like that. So Jesus says in verse 11, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Thought number six in the bulletin. The way Jesus made known the character and the reality of the Father was by his words and works. The truth of God filled Jesus' words, and the power of God performed his works. If you have seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. So what kind of a God has Jesus revealed to us? He was a loving God a compassionate God, a God who's concerned with the needs of man, a God who is weeping over the failure of men, and most of all, a God who desires to redeem lost men. Jesus said in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. This is the God that Jesus reveals to us. What a beautiful, loving God He's revealed. In verses 12 through 14, we have another promise. It's another radical statement of Jesus. He tells us about the privilege of answered prayer. Most assuredly, I say to you, He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Jesus was expecting them to continue his work and do even greater things than he had accomplished. We are to do those same works that Jesus did. This is point number seven of showing compassion and love and tenderness to show concern and care to one another and the world around us. It was through the disciples that Jesus was going to multiply his ministry after his departure. So he makes a promise in verses 13 and 14. He promises answered prayer. Answered prayer, I believe, is the provision for us as we do the works that Jesus did. He says in these two verses, And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So Jesus will be with the Father, but he's assuring them that his ministry is not finished in their lives as he intercedes as he intervenes, as he mediates for each of us with the Father. In fact, we read from, uh, from Paul in Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 34. It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who is making intercession for us. Jesus tells his disciples that he personally will answer prayers prayed in his name, the name of Jesus. Some people say, 
Well, I have a hard time with that. Because I've asked for a lot of things in Jesus' name and haven't, they haven't come my way. Well, asking in Jesus' name is not simply excuse me, <clears throat> attaching the phrase in Jesus' name to our prayers. Asking in Jesus' name means asking in harmony with his character and his personality. For the name of someone speaks of that person's very nature. So I'm not praying in the name of Jesus, no matter how many in Jesus' names I attach, unless what I'm praying for represents the name of Jesus. Is my request full of mercy and goodness, even willing to suffer as he did for his name? Is it in line with the person and nature and the attitudes of Jesus? You see, this phrase, in my name, it's not a talisman or a fetish that commands supernatural energy. Jesus didn't wish it to be used as a magical charm like Aladdin's lamp. The name of Jesus is like the name on the bottom of a check. It's a guarantee But it's also a limitation on those petitions and that check as well. For God will only grant the requests that can be presented consistently with his character and his purpose. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. In fact, we find throughout the New Testament that Jesus' name isn't an open, unrestricted blank check. These broad promises are answered um, of answered prayer. They're to Jesus' disciples. They're restricted. Uh, think of it like this way. If I were going to Augusta, Georgia to attend the Masters Tournament, and I have a ticket waiting for me at the gate under someone else's name, but there are rules that govern the ticket's use, certain regulations, and restrictions. Your prayer ticket saying, whatever you ask, is in Jesus' name. And knowing this determines how you come and what you ask. You don't come in to God's gate in a haughty, reckless way with self-serving requests. There are still rules and regulations associated with the ticket's use. But I believe all that gets taken care of when you come humbly and trusting, knowing that it's not your name that's important, but the name that's on that ticket. Now, as you look through the New Testament, one regulation or restriction for answered prayer is whether we're in fellowship walking with Jesus by his Spirit. Uh, Jesus says in John 15:7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. God wants us to give wants to give us what we desire. Even King David knew that. Back in the Psalms, look with me at Psalm 37 verses 4 and 5. David says, "Delight yourself also in the Lord." 
and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. But this promise is based upon delighting in the Lord or making the Lord the focus of our delights and pleasures. The word commit in verse 5 is, literally means to roll off onto. I would say it this way. Close your eyes and step off the edge. Commit yourself. Commit your way to the Lord that completely with that kind of abandon. And then your lights, your delights will be those that serve God's glory, God's purposes, that line up so totally with God's will that those delights will be given beyond measure. Are you seeking to live your life for Jesus? Jesus said in John fifteen sixteen, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. So point number eight in our bulletin, Jesus chose to finish his work, and the Father will answer our requests as we seek to accomplish that mission. You see, the Father is our resource through prayer for doing his will as we try to walk with Jesus. 1 John 5.14 says, Now this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. So Jesus is leaving. He's returning to the Father. But His promise is that He's only a prayer away. Service done in His name, done to glorify the Father, will receive heaven's help. The power of the disciples' message originated in prayer. Now the next radical statement Jesus makes refers to the work and the presence of the Holy Spirit. In verses 15 through 18, he promises to send us the Holy Spirit. Now verse 15 is a command that ties, I believe, the promise of answered prayer to the means of answering those prayers. First, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. I'm thinking this is a perfect way to say thank you for answered prayer. That's for sure. But it's also the perfect segue into introducing the Holy Spirit to these discouraged disciples. Because Jesus said... I will pray the Father, verse 16, and he will give you another helper. Who's going to help you keep his commandments? I will give you another helper that, you, that he may abide with you forever. Well, Jesus is going to ascend back to heaven, but the Holy Spirit takes up where Jesus leaves off. He's with us. He's with the disciples forever. Now, notice Jesus calls the Spirit another helper. In the Greek, this means another of the exact same kind. In other words, the Holy Spirit does the same work Jesus did in the lives of the disciples. That's one reason 
<clears throat> that we can say, Jesus has come into my heart, into my life, in the person of the Holy Spirit. God intended for the disciples to have the same relationship with the Spirit that they had with Jesus, but without the physical limitations that Jesus had while he was on earth. You might put it this way. The Spirit living within the disciples took the place of Jesus living beside the disciples. In verse 17, Jesus introduces the Helper. <clears throat> he calls him the Spirit of Truth. The Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. Now, the Holy Spirit is with you even before you receive Christ as Savior. It's his prompting that brings conviction before you're saved. My last point in our bulletin, the Holy Spirit lives in us like plugging into an electric socket, his power surging through us, bringing life to our human spirit. He resides in our spirit, witnessing to us that we are a child of God. As I bring this to a close, Pastor Sandy Adams says a mouthful, and I've printed it out at the bottom of, of your bulletin there so you can take it with you. This is his quote. The Spirit also reveals the presence of God. <clears throat> he conveys the peace of God. He releases the power of God. He bestows the gifts of God. He generates the fruit of God. He brings the comfort of God. He administers the correction of God. And He teaches us the truth of God. That's why He's called the Spirit of God. Then Jesus says in verse 18, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Tyler, you can start your way up here. We can see the work of the Trinity in these statements of Jesus. The Holy Spirit indwells us as the Spirit of Jesus living in our hearts. He also does the work of the Father in our lives. We're spiritual orphans no longer. We belong to God, adopted by the Spirit as children of the Father, given the promise to dwell in the Father's house forever. So this morning, the message brings promises to each of us that actually began in verse 6. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So I challenge you this morning to believe in Jesus. Come to the Father. Enjoy His peace for a troubled heart. Delight in the Lord. He wants to give you the desires of your heart. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. 
as we sing this last worship song. Lord, help us believe these radical promises that you've made to your disciples and to each of us. So God, we lift you up as we sing together. In Jesus' name, please stand together. It's good having you all here. I pray that the Lord will uh, bless your hearts and if your hearts are troubled, He's here for you. Uh, Mike's over here and Coach, if you'd like to pray with someone or just um, share some thoughts, come up front as I dismiss you. There'll be a lady available uh, over by the library for you ladies. God bless you. Have a good day.